if you could start by telling me a little bit uh, about how book one came about and why comics was the right medium to tell your story. Well, it started on the campaign in 2008. Yeah. I was serving as a congressman's press secretary, and uh, I was coming down to the end of the campaign, and we were talking about what we were going to do afterwards. And some people were going to go to the beach. Some people were going to go see their parents. (laughs) I was going to go to a comic book convention, and I said so. Everybody laughed, except for John Lewis. And he said, don't laugh, there's a comic book during the movement. It was incredibly influential. Hmm. And that was Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. So I went home, I read it, and it just seemed self-evident to me that with everything going on at that time, the summer of hope and change, that that it was time for, for someone like Congressman Lewis, whose story is so incredible and yeah. so important to American history, for him to do a graphic novel or comic book as well, so that this generation can see that history and they can put it in a new way. Um, and so I asked him... Um, and he said, okay, let's do it, but only if you write it with me. And so that's how we started. So, so that, that initial comic, the, the Martin Luther King comic, what was so powerful about it? The Martin Luther King story inspired me. Yeah. Uh, it, it told me what happened and how it happened in Montgomery about his leadership. Mm-hmm. The involvement of Rosa Parks, but the involvement of hundreds and thousands of people. This little book, 14 pages, sold for 10 cents, became the blueprint, the roadmap for me and hundreds and thousands of other people all across the American South. It taught us to accept nonviolence, not simply as a technique or as a tactic, but as a way of life as a way of living. So we started sitting in at lunch counters all across the South. And as a student in Nashville, I was part of the sit-in movement. So we'd be sitting there at the lunch counter and someone would come up and spit on us or put a lighted cigarette in our hair or down our backs, pull us off the stools, beat us, and later we would be arrested and taken to jail. And the first time I got arrested, I had just turned 20. I felt free. And I felt liberated. And I've not looked back since. Is, is there something about, you, you know, you've, 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 you've written a memoir. You're, you're obviously, you're out there, you're, you're speaking. Uh, but these books have caught fire in, in, in such a big way. I mean, it's, it's, I think they, they're, they've been far more popular than anybody could have imagined. Do, do you feel uh, that there's something inherent in, the medium and the use of, of images and words that people have connected with so strongly? I think most human beings prefer the way of peace, the way of love, that they do not really like violence and conflict, and it's, it's give people a way out, hmm. the way to protest, mm-hmm. a way to organize, a way to live a complete and wholesome life. Hmm. Uh, because the philosophy and discipline of nonviolence is saying we must respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. So it's powerful for all of us and for people of all ages. You can be young, you can be a young adult, uh, uh, you can be middle aged or older. But there's something about it yeah. that we all can become a part of. It. Did oh, please. 
when I was a kid, I started reading comics shortly after my father left. I was attracted to them because they were stories about people who were trying to do good things because they were the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a motive of profit. Yeah. There wasn't a, a motive Sup- of glory. Yeah, but yeah. in other parts of... You don't have such a... Uh, you don't have the same uh, weight put on the morality of a story as you do in comics. Mm-hmm. And that morality... Trans, uh, morality is part of the culture of Comic-Con, of, of fans. Um, and I think that's why March has been so successful. Because if, if you put out a prose book... Um, it's not going to that same fan base necessarily. But if you put out a story with true morality, true heroism, it's only natural that comics would embrace it wholeheartedly. And I think that's a big part of the reason why March has been so successful. It's because of the type of fans that read comics. Did, did when, when, when you were putting the, the books together, did you see them as potentially being a, a, a blueprint as, as a handbook for people in, in, in the way that, that this book was for you? Well, we thought uh, this book would serve as a guide, as a road map, as a source of inspiration for people yeah. um, to have the courage, what I call raw courage, to get out there and push and pull and be very bold, to have the capacity to stand up and say no when it's time to say no or to say yes when it's time to say yes. After the congressman told me about Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story, and we started working on March, I went back to Washington, and the campaign was over, and I started grad school at Georgetown at night. And it came time to write a graduate thesis. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing I had more questions about than the history of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. And so I set out to write the, write a long his, write the, the full history of it. Mm-hmm. And... We ended up finding out all sorts of things, like Dr. King edited it. It was used to inspire some of the earliest acts of nonviolence of the civil rights movement. But more than anything, it was written as a proof of concept that we could use something like March to inspire another generation to stand up and speak up. Yeah. Um, the th- quote that always came to mind for me was from Battlestar Galactica. All of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. And as we look now, two years after we debuted March, uh, we couldn't be more right about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think that that's sort of the unfortunate thing is how relevant all of this is right now. And you, you must have written it with, with, with that in mind. It's not, it's more than, I mean, it is, it is a historical document, but it's more than that, right? It, it's more than just telling your story. It's, it's a way of, you know, it's a way of teaching children that's that's part of the, the power of the medium as well, and and I think that that's part of the success of the book, is it's been adopted so widely by by schools and libraries. Well, what we had in mind is coming true. It is real. Yeah. Um, there are students, groups in different parts of the country that are organizing and mobilizing. Um, and as adults, church groups are being taken by this book, March 1, a book 1, and March, book 2, 
And I think uh, now when people see and read what happened during the Freedom Ride in Book 2, they're going to say, if these young people, if these ministers and lawyers and just plain everyday people were prepared to do something like this, I can do something too. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I spoke to Nate uh, a, a bit about the book earlier, and you know he was surprised at the very emotional, visual reaction that he had during some of it. He said, you know, one when he was reading your memoir, he, he told me about the moment he was on the plane and and the reaction that he had, and was surprised o- over um, hearing the stories from you and writing them down. How how emotional, how he's actually cried in, in the process, and I'm wondering if this is at all been an emotional process for the two of you? Well, it's been a very emotional process for me. Uh, When you go back and relive some of the events, uh, and it makes you cry. Yeah. Uh, And and sometimes you wonder, how did you survive? How did you make it through? Yeah, yeah. Every time we get to the end, I realize that I've gotten a little morose, a little depressed. Yeah. And inexplicably, I'll find myself just hugging the congressman in the office. It's like, how did you do that? And he'll make a joke, and it'll just, you know, it'll be totally unrelated. He'll just be having a good laugh at the uh, something going on. And I'm amazed at his ability to... To be joyful, yeah. Uh, to to persevere and still be such a happy and, and positive person, despite it all. How do you how do you do that? <laughs> how do you? Well, you you must have the capacity and ability to say, in spite of it all, yeah. I'm not going to become bitter. Not going to become hostile. Yeah. I'm not going to hate. Uh, I'm going to. Keep my eyes on the prize, yeah. and, and 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 move on. Um, and I believe that it's it's something, it's some force, uh, some power that leads you on with that sense of hope, that sense of optimism. That you make up your mind, you're not going to get lost in a sea of despair. Yeah, you have to believe it. You you have to believe it. That it's all going to work out. It may take a little time. Yeah. You may not see it all in your lifetime, but you must do what you can while you live, while you pass this way. And maybe some other group or some other individuals will pick up where you left off. And, and that leads me to the, the final question, which is, you know, and I imagine the most emo- one of the most emotional things and one of mo- the most frustrating things is the fact that we're still fighting these fights and and that a lot of it you know of late a lot of it has been in the news are you surprised having gone through what what you've gone through and having seen the changes in your life that you've seen are you are you surprised that these battles are still being fought i'm not surprised because uh, each generation must continue uh, to educate and sometimes re-educate and and lead yeah uh, to get others to join in and we will get there. I'm convinced as a nation and as a people, we will get there. We will create the beloved community. A community, a nation, where no one will be left out or left behind. 
and because the struggle is not a struggle that lasts for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, or a few years. It's a struggle of a lifetime, of many lifetimes. There you have those Congressman John Lewis and Andrew Aiden, his uh, his aide slash co-author on the book March. Uh, absolute. Absolute honor speaking to the congressman. It's really uh, one of the one of the, one of the most amazing people that I've ever had the, the opportunity to meet slash interview. Um, sorry, it was so short. This, this happened at uh, at San Diego Comic Con back in July, so we didn't really have a, a ton of time for the conversation. But thought we were able to, to cram some some pretty interesting stuff in there. Obviously, his his uh, his history, the amazing work that he's done. Um, you know, a, a little bit on uh, where where we are now. You know, these are um, uh, the you know the, the the issues that are covered in uh, in the book. March are you know, every bit as, as relevant now as they were when they were written. A lot of that stuff has kind of been bubbling up to the surface as late as as I'm sure you all know. And uh, of of particular interest to me, I, you know, I thought the part that was really fascinating and and, and actually didn't realize this before we sat down for the conversation, but I I didn't know the connection that the congressman had to comics you know and, and obviously he's, he's written a couple now uh they've they've written uh march books one and two those are both out now book two came out on top shelf slash idw earlier this year and they're working on book three but i i didn't realize until we sat down and talked just how how personal his connection was to the medium um you know clearly he's somebody who realized what a, 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 a you know powerful format it is as far as um getting these ideas across uh both to to younger readers and just to everybody in general really really powerful combination of uh, words and pictures but uh, really really terrific hearing about his background and, and how important comics were uh, to him growing up and you know the fact that um this is as I said before. This happened at San Diego Comic Con, and and you tend to think of, um, you know, a lot of the comics that come out there, and uh, a lot of these like bigger books is potentially being kind of like opportunistic. You know, you hear about uh, actors and you know non-comic book writers, directors, all these people working on on comics without any kind of knowledge of, of the format. But, but clearly, the congressman is somebody who has a keen understanding of. of, of of how powerful the, the, the combination of images and words are, uh, especially when you're dealing with an artist like like Nate Powell. Nate is somebody that I've known for a while now. I've interviewed him uh, 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 several times over the year. Um, he's done some really really fantastic books. Swallow Me Whole I, is, it has to be one of my, my all time favorites. So you know we we talked about that a little bit when we sat down and obviously spent a lot of time talking about March. Um, if you if you are a fan of the book March, I, I highly recommend sticking around for the, this conversation. Um, if you have any interest at all in comics, uh, really really fascinating. We uh, Nate was not quite as pressed for time as as the congressman was, so we 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 had a little more time to sit down with him. Um, it was a, it was an insane Comic Con for Congressman John Lewis. I don't know how much he saw of this in, in the aftermath, but there were some really fascinating things that came out of this. Um, you know, and I, I I had the the pleasure of watching the march. They actually did a, a children's march. They kind of did a, like a small recreation of of the uh, uh, Montgomery March. 
at uh, at Comic Con, but it was uh, it was the congressman leading just a whole bunch of children around the floor. So that was really fascinating. And the thing that I didn't realize at the time, and this actually came out uh, through all the blogs, but also uh, uh, before that, uh, the uh, top shelf top shelf employee Lee Walton uh, told me that uh, the congressman was actually doing some cosplay at the event. So he completely recreated everything about what he did at that original march he you know he wore right down you know, he wore the suit he had a backpack he had all of the contents inside the backpack were completely sane right 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 down to the the apple that he had in there. i mean obviously not the same apple because it's been it's been several decades a new apple but uh, really 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 fascinating uh, kind of a beautiful combination of of this story and and kind of the current kind of comic-con geek culture so that was really terrific uh, obviously really really enjoyed the conversation that i had with congressman lewis and um, andrew aiden uh also just really fun catching up with uh, with nate nate is somebody that i wanted to just have on the show um you know regardless of whether or not we were able to get the congressman because i'm a huge huge fan of all the stuff he's done on the road so uh so stick around and uh, listen to our conversation with nate powell I'm doing one of the vocal tracks for the De La Soul song, De La Cratic. Oh. This is some real-life sampling I'm seeing here. It's De La Cratic. I can hold my hands over my head and wave them in the air. It's De La Cratic. So we're talking to Prince Paul today. Hi. uh, Yes, I'll be reprising the roles of Prince Paul, Plug One, and Plug Two. I don't use the word superstar lightly, Nate Powell, but I'm in the presence of one now who, it's been a while since we talked, and a lot has happened in your life. Um, we'll talk about the movie thing in a bit. I want to start with the with, with March, because that's it's kind of been your life for the last couple of years. Oh, yeah. And will continue to be so. Oh, yeah? yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you know. As far as, as, far as more... More volumes. books? Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, Andrew and Congressman Lewis started working on it actively, like, in 2009. Yeah. I joined on at the very end of 2011. And, uh, yeah, two books are out now. Working on the third book, which will be out fall next year. Then there will be a fourth book that's, I mean, we're not adding anything on. We just changed the structure yeah. of the, the saga so that there's a core trilogy that ends basically when the Voting Rights Act is signed, but there are these essential elements sure. that happen from 66 through 68 yeah. that sort of fall outside of that narrative arc. So that'll be a fourth book. Sure. That's the fun thing about civil rights and racism. It <laughs> doesn't, end, doesn't end at the end of the trilogy. It's, it's, it's crazy, though, you know, how... I, I mean, obviously, it's always been relevant, but, you know, certainly, like, I imagine that... All, you know, with with the new book and just with everything that's been happening in the United States, there's been that much more interest in it. It's a it's a very I mean, it's something we we talk about openly amongst ourselves as we're working on it. Just yeah. like how awful it is that this this series of books is so relevant yeah. and is uh, actively a part of a cultural dialogue. You know. What was supposed to be sort of, sort of a historical record of a time in the past is now 
just part of the com- everyday conversation. Certainly, but I, I mean, it, you know, like it's hard to say. It's hard to say these things without it just reeking of a certain kind of privilege. Yeah. But it is true in a sense that yeah. the fact that <laughs> there is so much pushback and so much ugliness keeps rearing its head is in one way a sign that our world and our culture is catching up with itself bit yeah. by bit. Yeah. Uh, it's a matter of yeah keeping the pressure on. It's a matter of people sticking together. And it's a matter of, yeah, for example, John Lewis's story embedding itself as deeply as possible in that conversation, you know? And, and that's, I mean, you know, that's sort of the ultimate white privilege conversation is, oh, I didn't realize this was still a, an issue. Right. <laughs> you know, until, until all of this stuff started happening on the news, I thought that we, I thought that we were beyond that. And, you know, I, I you know, I'm, I, part of me felt that maybe we were beyond that, you know, certainly, certainly things seem to have gotten better. Yeah, well, I just feel like one, one, you know, finds oneself in a sort of like a, not tepid, but in a, in a, in a calm yeah. in the middle of what is just sure. a very turbulent sure. uh, nation full of a very awful history. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, yeah, there are periods of time where it's, it, it's easy to, you know, and it's kind of welcome at times to be able sure. to like let let loose a little bit. And if, then, if my life on the internet has taught me anything, it's that like you, you can't you can't just you can't fight all the time. You can't you can't survive. You know, it's 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 just not it's no way to live to constantly be be battling something. So yeah, it's nice to have a little a little reprieve right. from time it, to time. Yeah, the awfulness will always be there. Yeah. for all of us. Yeah. yeah. Well. This this is uh, uh, this is certainly one of the the uh, more downer <laughs> beginnings yeah. of an interview that I have had. Has you know has the fact that uh, you know that that again like what 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 has happened in, in the past year has been happening has that at all impacted work on the book? Oh, certainly. Uh, I mean, one of the thing I don't know like all of the books that I work on are pretty different from each other sure. in terms of process yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and everything but March has truly been a living thing in that regard hmm. um, whether it was like from a formal level starting you know back in 2012 with the idea that this would be a single book like a brick that was a document of this time and then in real time first like there was the feedback we were getting and the ways it was embedding yeah. itself like into schools and libraries yeah. was making us realize that we had a responsibility like on a historical level to really cross our T's and dot our I's and allow this to be treated as a historical document sure. as well as yeah. a memoir and a comic. And then there's that next level where we recognize that the reason it is having social relevance is because it's directly allowing people to address uh, what's happening in the world around them in real time. And so definitely through the process of working on book two, you know, we would have powwows intermittently. Uh, some of that, you know, like we would we'd roll with punches and, and uh, you know, shift uh, creative elements a little bit. Hmm. But a lot of it was mostly just like in recognition that uh, we always need to keep our ear to the ground as we're making this book to recognize that if there are a bunch of people reading this, yeah. uh, it's it's an active relevance uh, that's not just about learning about the past. It's about how to take this 
into the future. I think Andrew allows himself to be a lot more explicitly quasi-revolutionary in that regard. When he speaks publicly now, he's just kind of gone whole hog. Where he he said like the yeah. last several events I've done with him, like he's like, that's what we're trying to do. You know, like embed this into us another nonviolent revolution yeah. in our society. Uh, we're we're trying to do what we can to make this book a part of it. Did that? Which to did me, that come as a surprise to you at all? No, because uh, we say that to each other. Yeah, and there, you know, there are certain times where I feel like that might be a little audacious. Yeah. Or, but when we're working on it, that's exactly what we say to each other, or huh. what we're forced to acknowledge is like, you know, if one hundred fifty thousand people are buying this book, yeah. uh, then why, you know. Why is that not what we're trying to do? Like, and and from the standpoint step, step of, up to it. And, well, and from the standpoint of you know if if, and it was pretty clear from from the outset that this was going to be a book that was going to exist in libraries, that was going to exist in schools. Yeah. So, you know, if you're if you're trying to get that subversive message out there, if you're trying to create a, a new generation of revolutionaries, you've got the perfect audience for that. And I think uh, because there are three of us. Uh, as creators working on it, I feel like on a political and social level, the three of us are on exactly the same page. Yeah. And in my past... How cool is that to be on the same page as John Lewis? It's very, very cool. It's very cool. You know, like, I feel like in previous work that I've done, especially, like, closer to when I had a lot more to do with the punk underground and everything... Yeah. um, It's like one thing if you, like, you know, like, you're on the same political level as your bandmate. Right, right. But this guy oh, was hanging out with Martin well, Luther King. Just walking the walk and, and he's talking the talk. Yeah. In the Congress, yeah. yeah you bet. Well, I, like in previous projects, I feel like um, I've always felt a personal obligation to be a little more, a little more fiery and yeah. uh, over the top in that regard in terms of staking my position about things. It's nice because we do mesh so well politically with March that it allows me to actually step back into the role of the artist and well, also, uh, also because, trust the other two. Yeah, but, but you know, and, and I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, but it's, you know, it's one thing to be the angry white punk rocker. Certainly. You know, the, 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 it, it, the righteous indignation is maybe not as, as righteous. When you're working with somebody, yes, like yeah, it's, John Lewis. I mean, it's a real, yeah, it's a real wake up call in terms of like, un, yeah, like understanding all those facets of what suffering the, the, actually well, is and what the struggle well, actually is. Well, yeah, I guess like the notion of like when, how, and why, especially like in a, you know, coming to a place over a period of twenty years. Yeah. Uh, and, re, you know, your reasons and motivations for your convictions changing. Sure. But, yeah, like, working with, you know, the great John Lewis yeah. on this this story of his life. Uh, yeah, like, just really uh, being mindful of let, of, of using your, your skill set to let his voice and his life come out. Uh, so, like, I feel like I do a lot. I feel like where my personal touch comes in is, like, uh, the the weird, the subjective and personal moments, the quiet moments, uh, really drawing out these moments of fear or tension or doubt, stuff that might even be between the lines of the script. That's where I feel like I get the most personal injection. But a lot of it is like me being mindful that I don't yeah. need to be overstepping what I perceive as like yeah. trying to get some of my voice in there. Yeah. At what point, you know, what point did it, did, 
you know, because it sounds like you're having these these pretty like you know intimate like casual conversations uh, with one another. You know, what point did it cross over from feeling sort of like a higher job where you're drawing this book from somebody to actual you know collaboration with this legendary figure? Well, really, uh, as soon as I as soon as I got the script. Yeah. Uh, and started breaking it down for the first time, like spring of 2012, very quickly, uh, it began to fall into a natural collaborative relationship. Yeah. But it was not until we finished book one that we really figured out where each of us fit yeah. in that relationship. So I think if even if you read book one and then read book two, you sort of see... Uh, a formal sort of like a demo tape of our process <laughs> together is crystallizing throughout book one and by the time you get into book two like we had really figured out how like what each of us needed to bring to the table where to trust each other I think book two is actually very consistent in that yeah. regard we kind of hit the ground running with it and allowed it to change as we as we went and Lee Walton as the editor on book yeah. two and the co-editor on book one, like Lee really stepped up to the plate with book two and became a fourth, in many ways, a fourth collaborator. Like the level of uh, research and fact-checking and context became more and more important as, uh, you know, more real real people became involved in the narrative, et cetera. Um, So, I don't know. I think we, the the level of cohesion uh, was, was crystallized by the time we started book two. Yeah, but but for you, it's it, it it has to go beyond trust. I mean, it's not even it's not a matter of trust. It's 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 a matter of like, I, I would assume you know, what 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 can I say? Like you know, what what are, are there bounds that I shouldn't step over? You know, this is I mean, a a this is at the heart is project, but also like this is John Lewis. You know, like are, are there. It's got to be hard having, at least early on, having that conversation of, of, you know, of suggesting changes and trying to, you know, nudge them in the right direction. Yeah. Um, there, some of those would, uh, some of those are, were easy decisions to make. Others uh, just involved things I'd never thought of before. Mm-hmm. Like in book one, for example, yeah. there were, I remember early on when he's talking about his life growing up on a farm in Alabama. And I realized that there was this information, like what I saw as basic stuff was missing from the script about uh, whether it was descriptive information about his home or his parents. I'm like, well, I don't don't really even know what his parents look like. Can you just send me some photos of like your, your, your home of the farm and your parents? And, uh, and, uh. So yeah, Andrew asked him, you know, they work together, it's their day job, and then Andrew wrote me back and he was like, Well the thing is, like he grew up, you know, as a poor black child yeah. on a farm yeah. in segregated Alabama. He doesn't have he might he has like a picture of his yeah. house. Yeah. And I'm like I just take for granted just, yeah. just having pictures of yeah. my life to reference anytime I need it. Yeah. Uh, so there are things like that where I need to be like, if there's something missing from a lot of these early accounts, sometimes there's a reason why it's missing. And so sometimes that actually freed me up. And Congressman Lewis, you know, that's where he would impart trust in me. Uh, you know, like some of it would be I would read his memoir and tease out details. Then I would ask him specific questions. And then he would just leave it up to me. And I would 
send it back to him and wait for the you know the okay or wait for the blessing. Um, I do think that the first salvo of pages I turned into Congressman Lewis and Andrew kind of set a good tone. Mm. Uh, I sent in the first scene from the first book, which was it's sort of the dream sequence version of the Edmund Pettus Bridge attack. And uh, I guess handling the violence and and the violent language in that part was one thing, but also almost right off the bat I had to depict John Lewis being clubbed into unconsciousness by the trooper you know, which is an experience at the very core of his of his life. It's a hell of a first day at work for yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I, t- I turned it in, and I was like, well, here you go. <laughs> and uh, it was really nice because, yeah, Andrew, an hour later, sent me a message saying that uh, Congressman Lewis wept just reading those first seven pages and basically that, you know, that I nailed it in a way that he wasn't expecting I would be able to nail. Um, and... Uh, and I was like, okay, I don't know how I just got away with that. Yeah. but And it, what a weird compliment. You, you just made a grown man cry. Indeed. Yes. And, well, yeah. And that's a good thing is I think he and I are both, if I were just describing myself, sure. I, I would say that I'm a crybaby. Yeah. I don't want to say that he, he is, but we're both very... He's an open, we're, we're, expressive Yeah. We're, guy. we're expressive yeah. and emotional people. So, like, when we're working through this together, you know, like, uh, there are times where I feel like, you know... I, I get emotionally overwhelmed just drawing in the safety of my studio yeah. or whatever. And then I feel silly for being like, oh, boo-hoo, I'm being so moved. And then I'm like, this is the real power of telling yeah. this, telling the story of millions of Americans and their struggle, you know? Um, and then there are times where we'll be reviewing the book together and I'll have a couple of last-minute questions, you know, to make sure everything's squared away. And he'll occasionally like impart a new dimension of a story yeah. that I, we've heard before uh and then he'll get he'll get hit by some emotion and uh it i don't know it's a very encouraging environment i feel like we've uh we each shed a good amount of tears in each other's company and uh so it's nice to keep a consistent level of vulnerability i don't know yeah. I, i'm i feel very lucky to be a part of this team it must feel you, you must feel like you're kind of getting away with murder too just that you can just you know, send him send him a note and ask him questions. You know, just 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 again, like you were saying earlier, tease those things out of him. But but that's I've got to imagine that that's a part of the job that you didn't expect. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really interesting because you know, like I mean, it's a subject that I'm interested in anyway. Yeah. But now, in a lot of ways, it's like getting to go to school for free. You know, and as we're working on book three and book four, um, right now I'm reading a lot of stuff about Mississippi Freedom Summer but also about like the Lowndes County movement and the first the first wave of the nascent uh, is it nascent or nascent nascent the nascent, nascent black power movement yes. before it moved to the west coast which was mostly out of central alabama yeah. so you know like i know that there are some issues let's just say between uh, john lewis and stokely carmichael so you know, we'd be doing a march event and we'd be driving around, you know, after the event. And uh, I would have questions like homework to yeah. ask him uh, yeah. details about Stokely Carmichael and his memories of him. And basically, I wanted to know things about, like, what his me- what level of magnetism or charisma he had. Because, like, reading about him, he sure. seems to be very charismatic. 
and then he'll just open up and I'll realize that in that moment, you know, like I'm asking stuff for yeah. my job, but then he's just, he's telling me ex- exactly the way he experienced things in these moments that I just spent two months reading about. And those are the moments where my head just spins. Like when I ask a question like that and I'm almost not ready to get like some, to get a truth bomb on me. Uh, and it just really, it blows my mind. Yeah. Is he, you know, I mean, this is, he, he, he wrote the memoir earlier, but, you know, this is a, a three, now four book series. I mean, he's got to be, there have to be stories in here that he's just never talked about before. Yes. And uh, a lot of that is sometimes I, he might even, it might even slip his mind sometimes that he hasn't told certain mm. stories in print. And uh, there even, there's a time or two where he, in book two, March book two, he corrects his own record mm. from Walking with the Wind. Uh, and a lot of that is like in the way that history is a living thing. Yeah. We've discovered along the way that if something is incorrectly put into print in a document in the late 60s or in the 70s, everyone who writes a book from that yeah. point will use that as a reference. Yeah. So there are a couple of moments, including like the the rundown of who the exactly who the original 13 Freedom Riders were. Uh we correct the historical record in March. You're writing two. history in a weird well, roundabout well, that's the sort weird of thing way. Is, I think a lot of this this kind of goes yeah. into our, the American comics complex, like our legitimacy problem. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you a question yeah, exactly about like, that. With with March, it's weird because like, especially like you know, like Andrew is also a comic mm-hmm. nerd. You know, so like the two of us. We'll just be, you know, yeah. amazed that we're able to make a comic and make this this important and moving memoir, but also contribute to the historical record because people are willing to take it as history. That this isn't because like we, the graphics classics right. version of history. Uh, this is so, an actual history yeah. book. And it's being taught as such. Yeah. So, like, as soon as he realized that was happening, he and Lee worked very hard to make it, like, fit Common Core standards and fit everything oh, that, wow. so that it's on even footing in institutions with non-comics history books you know with real books yeah with real books uh but you know uh along the way there would be these moments where we're like well we keep wanting to be treated like a like real history because it is and then these are the moments where occasionally we're actually participating in the historical record by introducing something new or correcting an error that's been accepted did you know, I, I guess you know the, the 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 project already sort of existed in its nascent form. Thank you. Before uh, before you came on board, um, did did it? You know, and and like you were saying, you know, we've got our own <coughs> complexes surrounding surrounding comics, and we and we we tend to project those on people too. We Certainly. tend to think that like the reason why we're we're the way we are is because everybody else is that way. They've made us that way. Um, did he have any misgivings about telling this as, as a comic? No, I think uh, most of his uh, hesitation was just in those early, before he said yes. I think there was a, a month or two where Andrew was just repeatedly he would return to him and be like, "Seriously, you should do a comic." Yeah, and it just seemed it just seemed like an it almost seems like he. He didn't understand that he could, like, why would he say yes to that? What, how do you even do that? Yeah. Which is why it was brilliant that he was like, well, okay, but only if you write it with me. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, they sort of had to 
figure out what that meant, I guess. But he's while it's been an active project, I don't think he's ever had any misgivings. I do think that none of us, the creative team or even Top Shelf, knew yeah. until the release of book one. Like We knew that it would be bigger than... I personally knew it would be, obviously, bigger than other books I've done. Sure. But none of us had any idea that it would actually take off in such an... Uh, it doesn't sound right to say in such an ideal way, but that it would take off in the way that it did. Yeah. That people would would uh, really get behind it in such a personal and powerful way. Um, because, I mean, you know, there's... And, and over the past, like, 10, 15 years specifically, there are, you know, myriad examples of celebrities, people from outside, sort of getting involved right. and, and, and doing comics. And so um, certainly it wouldn't have been able to succeed just on the novelty of right. the fact that he did it. There, there would have to be something a little bit more to it than that. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we're we all aware of, you know, celebrity comics. Yes. And I think that was, like, at the forefront of our yeah, yeah, concerns. Yeah. Like, if if there's any flavor in the book yeah. that's one of those books, then we just have to get out. Yeah. We have to get out. Yeah. So uh, very quickly we realized that it wasn't going to be, and I think a lot of that was the creative combination uh, worked to our advantage. Um, and a lot of it was, I think, it, for, speaking for me, learning where to put my own ego and creative sensibilities aside. I was much more heavy-handed in my, uh, my input and just outright changes throughout book one yeah. as we were learning how to work together. That's interesting that you were more heavy-handed at the beginning. I oh, would imagine yeah. it would be the, the opposite. No, well, I mean... You would be a little Andrew, timid around him. Andrew really, as, and, you know basically as the person who delivered and crafted the script itself in, in the most active sense like Andrew really brought his A game with book two and like the level of growth that he had throughout book one sort of made it so that we were, we were working together a yeah. lot um, but I was allowing myself a certain amount of sway during book one as far as like, you know, like crossing things out and rearranging yeah. stuff and uh, Instead of just suggesting it, because, and, but because only, you're you're the one with the experience, you know, you're the one who's right. done a comic, and, so clearly you know better. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that I think that's okay, but then it required a mindfulness, so that very quickly I realized that if I continued to work like that, I would be overstepping my creative boundaries. Yeah. But we hit a point so that we actually didn't need to worry about that anymore. Uh, so yeah, it's. As a, as a living creative entity, it's been really amazing to see how our ability to do this together has shifted, uh, you know, to adapt to each other. Yeah. I, I, I hate to ask this question, but I know you all have to know that you're going to answer it in a good way, so I will ask this question. Okay. Um, you know, as, as, as it came out and as it became far more successful than you could have imagined, and as you said, anything that you had done prior to that... Um, did, did it, you know, it, uh, at what point did you figure out what was special about it? Was it, was it while you were writing it? Was it once it came out? Like, what, why did, wh- how has it become more than just a, a celebrity comic? Well, really, I think, uh, okay, I had broken down the script um, probably in March or April of 2012. The moment, oh, so I'd already, I'd, I'd looked through the script, mm-hmm. which at that point it was for the, in, you know, one giant book. Yeah. I think it was like supposed to be 300 pages yeah. or so. It was still 
much shorter than what it's going to be now. But I'd already read what the story was at that point. But I was flying to either Emerald City Comic Con or uh, what is now Rose City Comic Con. Stumptown. Stumptown Comics Fest. And I apologize if Stumptown Comics Fest did not actually become Rose City Comic Con. The Portland Show. Yeah, the Portland Show. You guys get it. So anyway, I was flying to one of those two shows in the Northwest, and it was right after I broke down the script, and I was like, okay, it's time to read Walking with the Wind and see what I can get out of it and just read a different account of it. It was a memoir. And as the plane was taking off, I read the introductory chapter to that book, which is, it's not in March, uh, but it's the actual chapter about Walking with the Wind. When this big storm was coming on his farm, or I think it was his grandmother's house, actually, um... And either his mom or his grandmother would get all of the children whenever, like, a tornado or a giant gale was pulling up one corner of the house. You'd get all the kids to run to that corner of the house to keep it on the ground. And they would run across to to each corner throughout the duration of the storm, walking with the wind, working together to keep the house uh, level. And, uh, you know, I was just, like, reading it. And the plane was taking off, and all I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. And I, it was really finishing that intro chapter was what made me realize, like, I was like, okay, I've got a big job to do. Hmm. Um, what, but what, like, what, what is, well, that was the first time I had ever yeah. read. That was the first time I had ever really read his narrative voice um, being, you know, I knew things about his life. Yeah. I knew, yeah. you know, stuff in a historical context. But I hadn't hurt, you know, like, why would I know these things about him with, yeah. his, with his many siblings on this farm uh, working together in, in this very, like, personal, subjective way, but, but definitely told through the perspective with, like, the rawness and the intensity of a child. Yeah. And so, like, uh, I, I realized that basically that's his narrative tone. And, you know, he's like a lifelong oral storyteller, and yeah. that's also different. It's like the first, the first incarnation of this story isn't written. It's oral. And some of this he's been telling for 50 or 55 years. Uh, And so that had to be respected. But, like, uh, when we're working on March, I think, like, these stories of him as a five to nine-year-old probably impacted me the most because though our circumstances were quite different, uh, they were happening not only within an hour's drive of each other. I grew up in Montgomery at that time, just down the road from where he was living, just outside Troy. But I feel like it became revealed to me this level of seriousness with which he perceived the world, even as a Mm. six-year-old, when he talks about, like, raising the chickens and accidentally killing one of his chicks. And uh, it reminded me of the turtles that I used to have and, like, the way that... I would treat them and make mistakes and, like, the level of gravity with which I would have imaginative adventures in the world around me. But it was never anything that I was, like, thrilled about. It was something I was deadly serious about thinking and pretending and living out. Um, and I think that immediately connected me to him or connected the two of us in my mind in a narrative sense. So I realized that was, that was one of the major things I needed to focus on uh, was remembering the the gravity of his perspective even from that young age and try to draw that out whenever I can it's it's interesting and 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 this is this is occurring to me as, as we're having this conversation but you know it beyond your drawing ability you know part of the reason why 
you're a really good fit for this book is because you are um, so self-analytical. It seems it, it seems like you're somebody who um, has spent a lot of time looking into your past to find out how you've become the person you've become. Like some the way your some brother would say has, that. <laughs> you know, like that's a bit. You know, that's a bit. You know, I'm like I'm, I'm sitting here as we're talking, and this isn't coming across at all, obviously, over audio. But you're such an expressive person with your hands. And I have to imagine that growing up with your brother was probably a big part of that. Yes. Uh, that's something I didn't realize until I was like 20 years old. Um, and actually, I wound up writing a short story yeah. with a little tidbit of that as well. Like He's, so, he, he's autistic. Yeah. yeah. And, and it turned, so he's born in 72. He's six years older than me. Uh, for context, for those listening... Uh, He's never been diagnosed. Uh, you know, like we live in this... Okay, in 1995, yeah. there was, uh, you know, what we know as autism was redefined as the autism spectrum disorder. And uh, it may appear statistically that there is an epidemic of autism cases occurring. Yeah. And a lot of that is because the definition of... Well, no, <laughs> yes, this is what we're getting to. We're talking about vaccinations. Uh, no, it's because what if, what if it just what if it just all of a sudden just went in that direction? Just goes off the rails, <laughs> and I'm here to talk about forced sterilizations. Okay, so basically fluoride in the water supply. <laughs> um, but yeah, before '95, yeah. there wasn't the same definition of what we consider to be the same disorder. Sure. So like things weren't I, being diagnosed, right? I would consider my brother is someone who has high functioning autism. My mom would consider him to be somebody with Asperger's. It's all on the same spectrum, but the spectrum didn't exist back then. So like I grew up knowing like through the terminology of the 1980s, you know, basically that like he had emotional problems Mm -hmm. and that he was hyperactive and had ADD and stuff like that. Um, But like, because there wasn't the same awareness, you know, and I, I didn't, I didn't figure out what was going on until my parents made me see Rain Man, Rain Man in sixth grade. And I, uh, it was an R-rated movie, and I was hanging out with my friend Jordan. And he's like, hey, uh, do you want to watch Rain Man? And his mom was like, well, you need to call your mom because it's rated R. So, like, just call her and see if it's okay. I hope there's some boobs. <laughs> uh, I think a boob is touched <laughs> in that movie. Um, so I called my mom. And I was like, hey, can I watch Rain Man? Yeah. And, and I remember very clearly she was like, yes, like you need to watch Rain Man. Hmm. She was like, you'll understand why yeah. after you see it. And then I, I think I might have even called her uh, right afterwards. Huh. That was like, oh, I get it. Wow. Uh, but, yeah, so, like, by the time I was 20, I started working with people with disabilities. It made me sort of revisit the way that I you know, like inherited a lot of my brother's affectations as just a classic form of modeling behavior that every kid has with their siblings and their parents. So I guess, I, I guess I, I had assumed that it was, um, an important part of communicating with him. Well, no, that's the thing is like my brother and I never had a single problem communicating. Yeah. And I think the, like the fights that we would get into were completely normal sibling fights. Um, so our communi- that's the thing is our communication was never yeah. hindered or weird. Um, but it was these other elements like my brother and I would like, you know, like my brother would audio- would make audio tape recordings of 
TV shows, sitcoms, and you can't do that on television and stuff. And we would listen to the audio tapes while going on car trips, and we'd go out, hang out in the woods, and he'd bring a tape recorder, and we'd listen to TV shows on audio tape. And, you know, he would repeat, reenact a lot of these things and stuff. Um, but I never realized that was something that people did or didn't do, yeah. you know, normally yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, kids do weird things, yeah, too. Kid, right. Yeah. And, but they're... Uh, but even like on a on a more surface level, like as far as like you know, getting in arguments with yourself or working things out verbally with yourself, pacing, uh, yeah, like certain hand movements, stuff like this, and some of that is even like you know stereotypical of yeah. some people with autism. But I have a lot of those affectations in little ways, and I think some of that is just because that's who my big brother was, and I think yeah. that's really cool. But I never thought of it before a certain point, and I'm like, wow, how amazing that, uh, yeah. like, in terms of, in some ways, being able to deconstruct a disability from its symptoms or its affectations, and then someone who is not classified as having the disability might have those same affectations because they grew up, you know, with that being a normal way that people yeah. Yeah. conduct themselves. It's... um. You know, it's that sort. It's the uh, kind of the, I don't know. It's like the the, the Kaiser Soze moment, or you know, that it's just that it's that moment that you realize, you know, that that something happens that that everything else all of a sudden just makes sense. Certainly. Um. Uh, sorry, I just totally totally lost my train of thought there. For a I would have gone Big Lebowski there, and yeah. I would have said it tied the whole room together. Yeah. Um. Uh, God damn it. Had a good one too. Ba-da-boo, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just somewhat related to that, but um, you used the word mindful a few times uh, when discussing your conversation with the, the, the congressman. Um, and I've got to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Buddhism. I assume that that's. I'm, th- I'm thinking of like all the Alan Watts lectures that I've listened to. Um, but that's sort of a part of it, right? I mean, that's part of being mindful. Is not only just being in the moment, but looking at why you're behaving the way you are. Oh, certainly. I, I think mindfulness is a very good word to describe what it is. Uh, I've started using that word more in the last year or so. I was never really aware of the word until I yep. had like my freshman college yeah. Eastern religion class yeah. uh, and got really into Buddhism for a year. Uh-huh. Um, but when I come back around to it, you know, like it's not consideration or common courtesy, or it's not like it's a mindfulness. Yeah, it's, it's remaining in a particular uh, mental space throughout the duration of living the rest of your life. Yeah, or living that moment of your life. Yeah, yeah. Has I, I assume that, that that doing comics has 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 played a role in that too? I mean, it, you know, insofar as some of your stuff is autobiographical or semi-autobiographical. Um, it's allowed you to be even more self-critical and self-aware than you would have been otherwise. Certainly. And I think at a certain point I tried to step away from that more Mm. because, and really I think that's the transition between like when swallow me whole wound up being, I mean, having a lot of little like moments that came from my life or, or the lives of my family, but was pure fiction. 
an early version of any empire, the next book, an early version of any empire that I did was a step back again to more of a, hmm. more of a real life smarmy political essay. Yeah. Uh, and then I realized that perhaps, yeah, it's time to continue stepping away from the bluntness of processing, you know, yeah. self-analysis and reflection you know, like in some ways regurgitating it into a self-reflective yeah. narrative. So uh, a lot of this was working through some edits with Chris Staros, but I realized that treating any empire less like uh, an essay or a memoir and more like a really bizarre, mostly fictional mm. work that was still based 70 or 80% on things that happened in my life uh, was was the way my my uh, my stories needed to continue to move. Um, and I think it's been m- more and more satisfying the more I've moved away from directly processing my life and and uh, producing it as yeah. as uh, comics that would now be called memoir comics. I'm, I'm just not really very interested in that. You you use use the word essay which is which is interesting also, you know, and you, you kind of conflated essay and memoir and those are two very different things and I think that that has to be a huge part of why March has been so successful is because it's not an essay. Because when you use the word essay, I think about, um, now I'm conflating essay and lecture, but, you know, this idea of uh, I'm going to put something in front of you and I'm about to teach you a history lesson. For sure. And this isn't that at all. And that's, and it is, I mean, it is memoir in, in a sense. Right. It's, his, it's his memoir, but it's, you know, it's a way to filter all of these uh, history lessons, you know, political messages, all of this incredibly important stuff through a hugely fascinating story. I agree. And I think, uh, you know, part of where we've been successful with March is being able to let it be several things at once. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, if I, if I were to just say this myself, it would sound really whack. So like, one of the ways that I think we've allowed ourselves to be as free as possible with March is I think that a lot of the power of the, of the book as a narrative is in letting a reader recognize, I mean, especially a reader that's our age or younger, letting them recognize that these people were 25 or 15 when they did this. Uh, but in getting so close to who yeah. they were as a young person yeah. that it's easy to see yourself as filling their shoes. Yeah. And obviously they're, that's tricky territory for obvious reasons yeah. of like privilege and context. Sure. But Congressman Lewis has come to the same conclusion and says it much more elegantly than I. Uh, but in terms of like, that's the whole point, you know, like, yeah. John Lewis and his friends as 18 to 25 year olds were filling these roles because, because no one else was, and they, they saw the need to, and it was, it was a very simple issue of something needed to be done. So why not them? And I feel like the, the further on we move, uh, the more we're all sort of standing behind, you know, uh, the why not you angle yeah. of March. And part of part of the narrative obligation of that is allowing everyone to see that these really were, like that John Lewis not only like spoke at the March on Washington and helped organize it, but that he 
was 23 when he did that. That's that's significant. That is so, it's a, it's an interesting thing, and, it, and it's easy to lose lose sight of that, you know, because it was so long ago. Because people just kind of looked older back then, you know. Oh, certainly, people well, yeah. looked more mature, and it's and and sort to bring this back around to you. I mean, this is a uh, I, I I have not had kids, but I imagine that having kids. Um, really drives that point home. It drives oh, drives home the point dude. of how young your parents were. Yeah, that's all I think about. <laughs> yeah, like my because my my parents were the same age when I was born as I was as I was when my first child was yeah. born. So there's this direct link. Yeah. I'm always hanging out with my three and a half year old. Yeah, and I'm like I remember being three and a half. Yeah, so that means my dad was exactly as old as yeah. I am now. And you and and for for that era. They were relatively old parents. It sounds like oh, you know, because yeah, yeah. being thirty-one or thirty-two yeah. when your kid is born, yeah, you bet. Um, but also, like, okay, so my my oldest daughter, um, you know, sh- she's now spent a couple of years being surrounded by images and artwork and videos and stuff of the movement yeah. and of John Lewis and his life, etc., and of March. Um, and uh, it's interesting, like it's been as much a part of her growing up as like reading Dr. Seuss books. And so when, uh, when Congressman Lewis appeared on the daily show, uh, right after book two came out, I think actually my second daughter was like five days old and, and everybody's like crying and up and not sleeping that night. And I hadn't watched it yet. I taped it. Um, or whatever it is. People call it now when they record things, (laughs) but I taped it. DVR. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on my beta max player, so it was like You're just trying to sound old. It was, like, it was like 4:30 a.m. Yeah. and I had I had like my five year old new ass baby, and then my three and a half year old, and I was like, okay, do you want to watch John Lewis talk about her book on yeah. on TV? And she's like, okay. And one of the most profound moments I've had in my my March life, I guess, yeah. was John uh, John Stewart did this incredible introductory sequence that spliced some artwork and stuff with video and audio or with video and photographs from the bloody Sunday massacre, including a photo that's on the cover of walking with the wind. That's the famous face off between the troopers and and John Lewis and Jose Williams and all of the protesters. But my three-year-old daughter saw all these things all together and I, I could almost hear her brain working. And then the indignation in her voice, uh, when she, she said, look, Daddy, the policemen are being mean, not letting John Lewis and his friends walk down the street. They're fighting John Lewis, Daddy. And I could tell that she was confused and horrified at just the still images and the simple video that she saw. But she understood that, that the activists were not asking for anything crazy or unusual. Yeah. They wanted to walk down the street and they were being beaten up. And it broke it down to such a simple level where I was watching my three-year-old be moved by a sequence of photographs um, that I, I realized that uh, you know, like this had far-reaching consequences in terms of like yeah. age and context for people. Anyway. So he was just daddy's coworker up until that moment he was just sort of a guy that was kind of yeah i mean she's she's seen him talk on tv a lot yeah. and uh yeah she'll get to meet him in september we're going to do a big thing in bloomington where i live um 
but yeah, she's always like, she sees his picture, you know, everywhere, like all over my pages yeah. and stuff. So she's always like, John Lewis is actually the only person for whom she knows their full name. Uh, she even, you know, she forgets her own last name yeah. sometimes still, but she's like John Lewis and Andrew. But yeah, typically like, yeah, yeah, she'll see the book and he's talking about stuff. But that was the moment where she understood that there was something we were we were communicating or some story we were telling and that was yeah it was profound so 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 re- real quick um about the movie uh you know we were we were, we were talking about this idea of kind of um i guess like seeding creativity in a sense you know of 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 like letting go of the reins maybe a little bit and let, let, letting other mm-hmm. people take over and i i have to that's going to be a really interesting process for you you know this the, the, one of your most personal books in a lot of ways definitely is being turned into a film it's not a lot of details as of the recording of right. this um, but how how hands on do you expect to be I'll be pretty hands on okay. uh, I mean to, for a little bit of backstory, this is actually something that I've been able to think about for like six years because uh, there was an initial round of movie interest in Swallow Me Whole uh, in 2009 and 2010, um, and I had I had some meetings and some talks with some different production companies, yeah. and for a couple of those, things w- were very promising, and then like two weeks later, the main person I was talking to would be like, oh, sorry, I don't work there anymore. Good luck, or yeah. whatever. It's uh, the, movie, the movie business. Yeah, it was the movie yeah. business. And also, that was, like, right when the economy tanked, and people were like, okay, yeah, we're not we're not buying up a lot of movies right now, yeah. unless it's, like, the Avengers 27 or sure. whatever. Sure. Sorry, Avengers, fam- Avengers fans. Yeah. Uh, They're only on two. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I saw the on first the one. Right here. I think it's perfect. It's fine. Let's move on. Uh, but, like, over that process uh, of that first wave of interest, you know, like... I guess like my creative and ethical considerations had to be addressed that early on where I'm like, okay, I know that I'm going to have to relinquish a certain amount of control, but if I am able to be in a situation in which I'm recognizing that the book is its own thing and I'm enabling someone else to tell that story their way, if, if I'm okay with that, then I can move forward. And then I'm like, I am okay with that. In fact, that's pretty cool. Um, nothing happened back then, but it allowed me to like get in the headspace where as long as I recognize that's true, I'm cool to move on. Um, and there was some more interest, yeah, about a year and a half ago. We worked out an option. I wrote a screenplay over the course of months and figured out the nuts and bolts of writing for a different medium. And I got some great feedback from various comic writer friends and stuff, you know? Um, and uh, it's allowed me to, I guess, reapproach the most special thing I've ever yeah. made in a lot of ways, and uh, allow the characters, in some ways, to like, you know, make new decisions, surprising yeah. decisions, yeah. Yeah. and respond to different parameters for this version of sure. the story. The constraints yes. of the medium. Yeah. But it's also like, if you know, if if all goes well, the movie will happen. It's not. It's going to be a small budget movie. I mean, it's not going to be like a. It's not going to cost two hundred dollars sure. to make. But yeah, it's not going to be a blockbuster movie. So like a lot of it involves. Uh, I really like 
the person who's slated to be the director, we immediately clicked. And actually, he had been writing me for years, uh, intermittently, being like, I was just wondering about Swallow Me Whole. Like, I really think we could do something special with it. And it all just kind of clicked at the right time. So we're in a great spot together. Um, And that... But yeah, I'm going to be like the music consultant or the the music supervisor. I have some very specific ideas about sound and music, and I like that your idea of handing over some of your creative authority to somebody else is writing the screenplay, <laughs> being the music supervisor. Oh, yeah, well, I mean that's the thing is like I feel like uh, my upbringing as a like hyper do it yourself yeah. person is something that I'm never ever going to shake. Yeah. So a lot of it is like allowing myself to trust people to a certain level, but recognizing that if something's not too hard to do, I should probably just do it myself. Uh, And there are a lot of things that are way outside of my realm of knowledge. But then there are a lot of things that don't require too much effort, and I should probably just do those. So we're really early in the game, and we'll see what I actually do wind up handling myself and what I don't do. But, uh, yeah, like a lot of this is still very unknown yeah so uh, a lot of it right now is generating interest we're going to film a short a short based on a couple of scenes of uh of the book or of the screenplay and uh go through some traditional channels and try to get things off the ground in some other ways uh so i'm learning as i go as well you know we'll see what happens in like a year in six months so you're, you're still able to uh, to write for yourself and do your own projects I mean it, it's, uh, March hasn't completely taken over your life not completely uh, March I mean, and, and the family right. I guess yeah well I mean yes it has yeah but like I uh, this sounds like I'm being a dramatic teenager but you know like a little bit of my soul <laughs> dies if I'm not able to sure. write and draw my own sure. comic so yeah I have a book called cover that started in its earliest form like 2008 or 2009 but I've been working on it pretty seriously for about three or four years now I pretty much just have to keep delaying it because of March or having to do other work for hire to make a living Yeah. Uh, Yeah. because newsflash there is still no money in comics sure Sure. Uh, and uh, yeah I have to just do a lot of projects at once but I have the entire book written uh I have it in a like an oversized sketchbook. The whole thing is like thumbnailed and broken down. Yeah. Uh, it's and I've penciled the first sixty pages several times and just kind of shelved it. It's a matter of really just yeah, got to finish March and then I can basically pencil it, edit it, ink it in a year, a year and a half. I just have to be patient. But the more I have to wait, um, the better it winds up being. It gives me time to think and yeah. reflect and apply things. You know, my changing priorities in life back to the story, draw new things out. Uh, but also, the more I do for higher work with other writers, I feel like the better a writer I become. You know, I, I'm a weaker writer than an artist, so it's it's nice to have to wait. I Just to get back to the idea of mindfulness for a second, I, I um, uh, ran into uh, Jeffrey, Brown, Jeffrey Brown on the way here. Sweet. And had a nice little conversation with him. Uh, he's doing those Star Wars books. Oh, yeah. And... Um, he said, you know, I, I asked him if, how, if he was just going to sort of keep doing it. Definitely, he, you know, he told me he was going to take a hiatus because he didn't want it to feel like a job. And, I, you right. know, I, told, I, I get that. But at the same time, I had to say, Jeffrey, we're talking about mindfulness. 
you need to step back. It's like you need to step back sometimes and, and, and realize that, like, and I get the same way, too. You know, I, I get to come to shows like this, you know, write about comics and, and talk to people like you and do fun things. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a job like any, anything else. But every once in a while, you need to be mindful. You need to take a step back. You need to realize that this day job that would kill, kill your soul a little bit if you had to do it all the time is kind of amazing. You're, oh, for you're sure. You're kind of like so lucky to work on a project. Well, like that's that. the thing is it's both things yeah. at once and that's yeah. okay. Actually, to tie the whole room together sure. a second time, yeah. uh, on my wall across from my desk, it, there's a little Jeffrey Brown panel back when he used to sell those little yeah. single panels. Yeah, yeah. The one that I bought from him is him as a kid uh, drawing Kinner is the Hulk or Wolverine, but while he's drawing, he's thinking, "When I grow up, I'm going to draw for Marvel Comics." And I look at it every day, many times a day while I'm working. Because I mean, as soon as I, when I was 11, I got into drawing comics, and uh, not only I had, you know, like a crystalline thought of like that's the way it happens. Yeah. It's like my uh, my friend, Mike Lyerly, who I dedicated You Don't Say to, uh, he and another best friend of ours, he got me into drawing comics. But yeah. we really thought at age 12 that what we were going to do was we had this comic called X Vigilantes. And we had several issues we wrote and drew and everything. Letter, letter X? Yeah, yeah, with an X. Yeah. Uh, but we were going to go to the Marvel Comics office where mm-hmm. Stan Lee was working because yep. he had an office there yep. and he worked all the time. <laughs> and we were going to... You know, go in there and drop off our pages and be like, eh, take a look, you might like it. And we turn to leave, but he'd be like, like, stop, boys, this is great. Let me sign a contract for you right now. And we didn't, we couldn't conceive that there was any other way it would happen. Yeah. But in many ways, I feel like the, uh, like the sheer force of will that draws you to like spend so much time making any kind of comic is fundamentally the same as when I was 12. And so I feel like that spirit of, like, someday I'm going to draw this Hulk comic yeah. is kind of what motivates me, like, whether I'm drawing March or whether I'm spending six years drawing cover in a sketchbook or whatever, um, is, yeah, recognizing that, like, the dream job when I was 12 is what I'm doing, even though it simultaneously sucks and is the most amazing use of my time possible. <laughs> I mean, it can be both things, and it is. There you go. That was Nate Powell, uh, one of one of my favorite indie cartoonists, and just I think maybe one of my favorite human beings in general. Such a, a, a just a, a wonderful, wonderful dude. Really fun to talk to. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Uh, as I mentioned before, thanks uh, to, to Congressman Lewis, and obviously, and uh, Andrew Aiden. Thanks to, uh, to to Lee and Chris and everybody at Top Shelf for for setting all these up. Uh, just an absolute pleasure and and an absolute honor. Had 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 so much fun. I'm really really happy that I was able to to bring these conversations to all of you folks. If you if you liked them or you just have any interest in, I assume that you like them. If you're still listening to the show at this point, if you did enjoy the conversations or just have any interest at all in the subject matter, highly highly recommend you pick up the March books. Uh, book one has been out for some time. Book two came out in January, and they're currently working on book three right now. Obviously, a really really fascinating story um doubly fascinating to hear from somebody who was front and center uh the whole time and you know just the 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 combination of 
Congressman Lewis's rec uh, recollections and, and Nepal's very, very powerful images that make it for a really, really terrific uh, comic. So pick that up from IDW and Top Shelf. Uh, thanks to everybody at uh, Top Shelf. Thanks to, to Lee and Chris for setting that up. Uh, thanks to Brian, as always, for editing this show together. Uh, thanks to thanks to the Mark and Everett Boy Boy Podcast Network. If you like this show, there are many other fine Boing Boing shows. You can check those out over at iTunes, and while you're over at iTunes, take the uh, take take the opportunity to rate the show. Got a couple of new ratings recently, and we'd uh, we'd appreciate a few more. Always always like a feedback, so long as it's positive. If you have any feedback at all, you can also uh, send us an email to rawildcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Tumblr. That is the first and best place to get all of your RAYL related information. That's rawildcast.tumblr. Dot com. Uh, we've got the Facebook page. You can like us over at Facebook. Uh, I think that's about all I got for the show. I got a lot, lot more interviews coming up from New York Comic Con. This is going to be. A, I hope. I hope you, you folks like your comic books because a lot of, a lot of comics related uh, interviews coming up in the near future. I just got back from Baltimore Comic Con this week and spoke to um, some really wonderful people over there. Uh, Jim Starlin, uh, Stan Sakai. Uh, Carly Speed McNeil, oh, Jules Pfeiffer, just uh, lots of really terrific interviews, so uh, stick around for those. We will be back with, uh, with even more next week. We've got another episode of RYL coming at you.